0: The reading today is from the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke chapter 15, beginning at the 11th verse. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and travelled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, A severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself he said How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare but here I am dying of hunger I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him Father I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked, What was going on? He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, For all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed any command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ.
1: May I speak in the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you on this fabulously rainy morning. Um, it was a beautiful morning a little while ago. Um, not least, it's fabulous to be with you because we've already received someone into the Anglican Church, and in this service, we're going to confirm 12? 12! 12, 12 people. That is not something I do regularly. It is wonderful, in a sense, to be doing it. If I can just say, I feel like I'm back in the 1980s when the churches used to be a bit larger. But it's also a delight to be with you today because I think we had one of the great readings from the Gospel, the story of what's commonly called the Prodigal Son from Luke's Gospel. I want to explore that today and I want to end up by telling you why I think it's misnamed. But I'd like to, in a sense, to ponder what we make of Jesus' stories, because this is one of Jesus' stories. And how do we make sense of them in this rather crazy world that you and I find ourselves in? And what, do we, in a sense, do we make of Jesus himself? So. I am drawing a big frame here for this sermon. There was a time in the past, sometime before the 1980s, when almost everyone who could be Christian was Christian, and in a sense, they found it easy to make sense of Christianity. That's quite a lot of ideas in there. But if you think back, Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, especially in Europe, most people were Christian, and in a sense, they had a very easy, almost naive view of how to read the Bible. Miracles were not problematic, nor were the rather tricky bits of the Bible that spoke about the roles of women and the other minorities like gays. That actually was quite a long time ago. And you and I, whether we like it or not, have been living in a world of increasing change. Boy, don't we know it just at this moment. Everything seems to be changing. But some really big kind of themes that have been running through society, like modernity and post-modernity, have made reading the Bible more tricky. Miracles with modernity... Became harder to believe in a straightforward way, and even the teaching of Jesus has become harder to understand with the whole framework of post-modernity. I'm not going to apologise for speaking plainly to you, but I'll be honest: reading the Bible in our world is different than it was back in the 1600s or back in the 1200s, and in a sense, it's harder. 400 years ago, 400 years ago, um, most people were not troubled by the mystical bits of the Bible. The philosopher of secularism, a guy called Charles Taylor, has described that world hundreds and hundreds of years ago as enchanted. We had what was called an enchanted worldview. A worldview, in a sense, when it was easy to believe there were spirits in the trees and that, in a sense, God was causing a storm that was happening right in front of you. Creation itself was imbued with meaning and purpose. You and I don't live in that world. Even if we wanted to, we don't live in that world. We live in a modern world. And we live in a world that is post the Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries and all the knowledge that science has has brought. And the term that Charles Taylor uses for that world, the world you and I live in, is the disenchanted world. We are disenchanted. And doesn't that kind of name something that sometimes you feel about the world around us? It doesn't quite deliver. And the reason he says that is, as I said, these big movements in society, not least the enlightenment and the increase in scientific knowledge. So in some sense, God is not quite as imminent as we once easily believed, nor is God quite as transcendent as we once believed. Those are big words for saying God with us and God kind of up there. But I don't think anyone here would literally believe that God is up there because wouldn't you just be, rather be sitting here in church on a Sunday be building a space rocket to go there if God is up there? We live in a scientific worldview and we have a different sense of where God is. But it means there's a real question for us about where God might be, where might she or he be. I'm just going to check. I can't do this with you online, but I can check with the people here. Are you with me so far? I am going to get to this parable. Trust me, there's a bit more to hang on for. But one solution that in a sense churches have made, one move that churches have made in the last 50 to 100 years is that with all this increasing knowledge around us, some churches have turned their back consciously on modernity. This isn't this church, it's not the Anglican church, but there are churches you know around here where, in a sense, they think they're being faithful by being suspicious about evolution or climate change or even vaccines. That's not being faithful. Jesus didn't have a view on vaccines or climate change or evolution, Anyway. Sorry. (laughs) There was a bit too much emotion there, wasn't there? (laughs) Those churches do their very best to read the Bible, and you'll know this, in a very literal way. Even if that means that it means stopping women preaching, as many churches do, and even as some Anglican churches do down in Sydney, even if it means that they stop welcoming in minorities into their churches. And the idea of that is that somehow the Bible has propositional meaning in almost every verse of the Bible. But I'll be honest, I don't think the Bible speaks like that. It's not how the Bible was written. You might find this interesting. It took a 1,000 years after the writing of the New Testament for someone to think, let's divide it up into chapters. Isn't that amazing? And it took even longer for someone to think, let's not just break it into chapters, but let's make it into verses. So quite genuinely, if you got into a time machine and you went back a 1,000 years somewhere in Europe and you could make yourself understood, and you said to someone, my favorite Bible verse is John 3.16, they would look at you blankly. They'd have no idea what you're talking about. If you said, my favorite Bible, bit of the Bible, is God so loved the world that he gave his only son, they would know exactly what you meant, but they wouldn't have a clue about the division into chapters and verses. That's a really long intro uh, to what is an amazingly powerful story that we had today. And I'm doing all this because Jesus taught using parables. Actually, it says, I'm not going to tell you where it says, but you can find it in the Bible. It does say he didn't teach anything without using a parable. So parables are really really instructive. So I think we should attend to the story you just heard, so well read, just as you attend to watching something brilliant on Netflix or Disney or whatever. You know, if you sit down and you watch a really, really good movie, I don't know about you, you do a bit of research about the director and maybe the cast, and you might be sat through the movie and you start to think to yourself, why on earth did they film it that way why did they place that scene where they did oh i can see now you might get to the end of a movie and you say i see now how this was foreshadowed way back there you ask all these questions of something you watch on tv but sometimes we don't ask the same questions of a biblical text but we can it's a story So we can ask all those questions. We can ask, what did Jesus have in mind? Even what did Luke have in mind when he put it down? Who was the audience that they were addressing? These are all good questions we can ask. Now I just need to say, I'm not saying here that you shouldn't sit down and pray before you read the Bible, and you shouldn't sit down in groups to study the Bible. Of course you should. I'm just saying, in addition to all that, You can ask any Bible story all these kinds of questions. I want to say this. You don't need to check in your intellect to be a Christian. That's something really important to say to those getting confirmed today. You don't need to believe six impossible things before breakfast. If you can get my Alice in Wonderland reference. You don't even need to know the Bible by chapter and verse, because hey, Half of the Christians in the world ever haven't known that. What I am actually saying here, it'd be really good to attend to the stories that Jesus told, not least this story of the prodigal son. So let me get to the story. If I can tell you and confess to you, one thing that gets me about this story is why doesn't the story end with the son coming home the first son coming home it would be so nice if it just did and it ended with the father saying for this son of mine was dead as alive he was lost and is found and they have a big party it would be so nice if it did but this is the first thing to learn many of the gospel stories aren't trying to be nice they're trying to tell you something else And so this story goes on with that second half, which, I'll be honest, is quite difficult to read about the older brother who is grumpy, who actually is angry. He's the one who stayed home and done the hard yards. So that brings me to perhaps one of the big questions I want to ask you this morning. Whenever you hear a Bible story, a particular, anyone, especially some of the Jesus' Bible stories, it is very likely that you will resonate with one of the characters or another in a story. There's one that you'll feel instinctive sympathy for. And it's especially true of this story of the prodigal son. So it's quite possible you're sat there and you really resonate There'll be some of us here who will resonate that we are, in a sense, the son that's run away and has come back penniless at some point in our lives, needing mercy. Is that you? Does that, is that how that story makes sense for you? For yet others, do you really think of yourself as the oldest son? Do you really want to say somehow to Luke or to Jesus, I get him. He has every right to be angry. Why does the father ignore him? Are you, in a sense, the older son? By the way, if I can just share with you and even correct my own sermon, the father doesn't ignore the older son. I guess almost all of us know that the father runs out to meet the younger son as he comes home penniless and kind of gives him a big hug and it's, it's pictured in art beautifully. It's easy to miss in the text but you actually heard it just a few minutes ago that when there's the big parties going on and the older son walks back to the house he calls out a servant and gets really grumpy and then the father goes out to meet him too. The father goes out to both sons. And lastly, of course, you could have heard this story and you could resonate with the father. Of course you could. Your life might be really complicated. You might have in your own life a prodigal, maybe a child who's gone off and done crazy things. And you might even have that dutiful other child who has done the hard yards, who's turned up to all the family parties, who comes back for Christmas and all these other things. So who are you in the story? That's not the end, in a sense, of our understanding of the story. Not at all. For one thing we can do, if we treat it like this, we can ask ourselves, what kind of dad does that? What kind of dad gives half the inheritance away and then is still welcoming and forgiving when the son comes back? What father is unbelievably reasonable with the grumpy older son? And then you can do this, because it is the Bible. This is one of Jesus' story. It's not just what kind of father, but what kind of God behaves like that. And to those of you getting confirmed, what kind of God are you letting yourselves in for? This is a God who is generous, faithful, steadfast, forgiving. It's a God who, and this is a bit of a twist, loves stories. Because, hey, God teaches these stories and in a sense wants you to write your own faith story. It's a God who, I believe, loves you irrespective of your orientation or your lack of knowledge of Bible verses. What if you didn't need to impress God for God to love you? Is that not what this story is about too? To all of you, What if you didn't need to impress God for God to love you fully? What might that mean for you? I said at the beginning, this story is known as the prodigal son and that it wasn't a great name for it. It's known by other things. Of course, it's known as being the parable of the two brothers. Of course, it's about two brothers. But even better, I think, and it is sometimes known as the parable of the loving Father. Our loving Father. Amen.